Welcome to Straight Talk with Wine Spectator, a podcast from the world's most widely read wine magazine. Here on Straight Talk, we're bringing the pages of Wine Spectator to life, from the latest vintages of the world's best wines to in-depth interviews with the world's best winemakers. We'll also be answering your questions, covering the latest wine industry news, and much more. And I think he thought it was punishment. Well, when my dad came back from vacation, he was hoping that I would apologize, and I just literally said, can I come back here and work at Christmas time? And the rest is history. It's delicate, doesn't suffer fools well, and um, doesn't have a lot of room for error. I'm James Molesworth, Senior Editor and Special Projects Director for Wine Spectator, and I'm hosting this episode of Straight Talk to highlight our June 2023 issue. Our cover story is on the Auberge Resorts Collection. We'll check in with President and CEO Craig Reed later. Also helping to headline this episode is legendary winemaker Tony Soder, founder of Napa Valley's Etude Winery and his namesake Soder Vineyards up in Oregon. And to help me get through all of this, as always, I'm joined by our podcast director, Rob Taylor. Thanks, James. It's always great to be back here in the studio with you. I want to make sure we cover the big news in fine wine this spring, which is that the 2022 Bordeaux Vintage is getting some hype. Mm -hmm. And you just got back from there, where you get to see and taste for yourself. You've been publishing your barrel tasting reports on winespectator.com from all your top chateau visits on the left and right banks. But the real question is, is the hype for real? It's not a spring without a hyped vintage coming out of Bordeaux. It is the uh-huh. annual rite of spring, the en primeur season. Short answer, yes, the hype is legit for okay. the 2022 vintage. There's more to it than that, though, obviously. This was another vintage like 18, 19, and 20 that was very hot and very dry, what they're calling now the normal extreme weather pattern that they get. However, what was different in 2022 was it was warm and dry right from the get-go and stayed that way fairly evenly throughout the year with just a little bit of rain in June and August to help it out. Those other vintages I mentioned, they had ups and downs along the way and other issues as well, and they tend to be much more heterogeneous vintages. 2022 is looking very, very consistent in terms of quality, and also it's a new paradigm in terms of style. Those other vintages, they show the heat. They've got big tannins, they've got rich fruit, slightly elevated alcohol, slightly lower acidity, this vintage comes across like a just absolutely beautiful, aromatic expression of purity. The wines are sleek and fresh. They feel like they're acid-driven. The tannins are super fine. It's really, really a unique vintage. So I know we've got a lot of potential classic wines on the horizon, but no scores yet, right? No scores yet, but because the wines aren't finished, and this is what I've been doing for the last couple of years, and this is really more of a trade event en primeur, they're selling their wines to the negociants. They're available for sale in the U.S., but Consumers tend to take a wait-and-see attitude until the things are bottled, and the buying's all being done by negociants and the large-scale retailers. So I can't really advise people to go out and buy the wines now unless there's a wine that you just have to have because you get it every year. The wine's going to be there in a year and a half, two years when they actually release it. The prices are not going to go up by that much because they've released them at high prices now to begin with. So the days of the on-premier system being a way for consumers to get in early and get a good price, not so much anymore. So that's why I'm not scoring the wines now. I'll just wait until they're bottled and I'll taste them again in a year and a half. But if anyone wants to find out how their favorite Chateau is doing in 2022, you have a pretty thorough barrel-tasting report lineup over at winespectator.com. Lots of chateaus, lots of content. Yeah, all my winery intels are running there. I visited a a couple dozen people, tasted a couple hundred wines. So I've got a pretty good grasp on the vintage. And there will be plenty of clues in those reports if you're looking to buy early. And now for a closer look at one of the world's leaders in high-end hospitality, we're going to be talking about Aubert's Resorts with Wine Spectator Senior Editor for News, Mitch Frank. Welcome back, Mitch. 
Hey, thanks, James. You wrote our June cover story on Auberge, and most of our listeners have no doubt heard of the flagship resort, Auberge de Soleil, here in Napa. But give us the full scope of the Auberge Resorts collection. Yeah, it's one of the most ambitious names in luxury travel today, but you might not have heard of them because Auberge de Soleil is their only hotel with Auberge in the name. The company has been rapidly expanding in the past decade, from its roots as a restaurant and then a small hotel in Napa Valley. Auberge de Soleil dates back to the 1980s, and the founders gradually expanded it into a company of six hotels they managed. Houston billionaire Dan Friedkin bought it in 2013 and has expanded to 26 hotels around the world, from Napa to Newport to Santorini, with more than a dozen in the works in markets like San Francisco and Florence. Well, you got to speak with the CEO of Aubert's Resorts Collection, Craig Reed. Why don't you introduce us to him and then take us into the interview? Yeah, Aubert's Resorts CEO and President Craig Reed spent decades at the Four Seasons. Uh, He eventually rose to be president of the Americas division for them before Friedkin hired him in 2014, just after he bought Auberge. Reed, though, got his start in hotels much more modestly when he was just 16 years old as a busboy in England. Yeah, it's interesting. I was asked to work at a hotel that summer by my father because I had uh, not done well in my studies, and my siblings all went to the south of France, and I stayed in the north of England. And I think he thought it was punishment. Well, I worked as a assistant commie in the restaurant and there were a bunch of French and Italian kids there my age and uh, the energy was uber positive the guest contact was fantastic we were touching you know a level of excellence that I'd never never previously experienced and we would work really hard we'd generally get some great tips and every evening we'd leave and go out to a nightclub or to a bar or something I thought this is the life so uh, when my dad came back from vacation, he was hoping that I would apologize. And I just literally said, can I come back here and work at Christmas time? So, and the rest is history. Well, sometimes the career chooses you. I, I love that story that he started on the bottom rung as punishment and then fell in love with it. And the hospitality industry, Mitch, is really an industry that draws people who, who see it as a passion. It takes a special energy, which is what Reed says he looks for in his employees now that he's overseeing 26 different hotels. He still remembers that Four Seasons philosophy he learned, that how staff members treat each other is how they're going to treat guests. His focus in the past year has been two new California wine country properties, Stanley Ranch in Napa Valley and Maddie's Tavern in Santa Barbara's San Inez Valley. I asked him how the three Napa sibling properties compare. In terms of the choreography of service, you know, Auberge de Soleil has a higher number of suites in it. It's very much dining-centered. It's a bit of a hideaway. It's adults only. You know, Solage is social. It's more approachable from a price point aspect. It's got this spa that speaks to the old Calistoga mud baths. And then Stanley Ranch is sort of an in-between. It speaks to a higher price point. There are bigger units. There are more units. It's a much larger campus. I think uh, just by virtue of the fact that you really feel that you're in the countryside, by virtue of that, I think it's going to lead to longer stays. You're going to have this homeowner community, so you're going to have a very different dynamic because of that. And so they're each very different. And you also recently added the Inn and Manny's Tavern, which is in Santa Barbara County. 
not in the city of Santa Barbara, but in the Santa Ana's Valley in the heart of wine country. And that's a historic property that was small, and you've expanded it with cottages. So that's a whole different feel. Very different feel. And, you know, this, this little town with uh, no traffic lights but a couple of stop signs. And town is mostly little stores. It's very quaint. Maddie's Tavern has been there for 100 plus years. You know, I like to ask people when, when I'm telling them where it is, is, by the way, have you ever taken the stagecoach from Los Angeles to San Francisco? Which, of course, they haven't. But it sort of conjures up uh, a reflection of how that town came to be because Maddie's was one of the first stops on the stagecoach trail. And this is wonderful restaurant, Maddie's uh, and Tavern, that had this very important historical raison d'etre, you know, in the beautiful valley with beautiful vistas around and the, the town is just charming as can be. It's been a huge hit and it's so different. And yet, you know, you will have the same pillows in all four properties and sheets and ideally the same level of friendliness. And by the way, from a culinary standpoint, the four chefs deliver such different food. And and to me, that's part of the magic. I think that different magic that he's trying to get and, and is successfully getting in each of his places is really interesting, Mitch, because there's a lot of pushback on development in wine regions, specifically in Napa, where, for instance, people feel like it's developed to a point where it shouldn't have any additions. And then you've got regions that are you know up and coming and want to have a high-end luxury resort. He seems to be kind of threading this uh, this needle nicely in developing these new places in both existing and emerging regions. Well, and you can also imagine how Napa would respond if somebody tried to erect a generic high-rise luxury hotel that you could find anywhere in the world right in the middle of Napa. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about Auberge's approach is that it really meets the luxury traveler where they are today. A few decades ago, when we were traveling, we were looking for comfort. Your hotel was a refuge uh, from kind of the unique, different setting of where you were going. It was nice at the end of the day to have a locale that was familiar to go home to. Now, we're a lot more adventurous as travelers. We're looking for a place to stay that fits in with the surroundings and the local terroir and is part of the community. And even though we want a nice, comfortable bed and excellent service, we still want a little adventure as well. Well, thanks for getting that interview with Craig Reed of Aubert's Resorts. Mitch, that was another good one from you. We appreciate it. And I'm sure our readers are going to check out some of those new places in Napa. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Now for a Negroni. I like the way you think. (laughs) Getting back to Wine Spectator's June issue now, we've also got our annual Brunello tasting report from Bruce Sanderson, a look at international sparkling wines from Allison Napius, and our annual Oregon tasting report. That's right. And here to tell us all about what's happening in Willamette Valley is Wine Spectator Senior Editor Tim Fish. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thanks for having me. Thanks, James. Tim is our lead taster for Oregon, Washington, and California sparkling wines, plus Merlot and Zinfandel. He joined us back in 2001, and he's got a really long resume when it comes to covering Oregon. Tim, why don't you tell our listeners the most recent two vintages from Oregon that are in the marketplace and how you would describe those vintages of Pinot Noir? Well, my annual report in the June issue focuses on 2020 and 2021 vintages of Pinot Noir. Wildfire smoke was a significant issue in the 2020 vintage, and many wineries didn't even release wine. If they did, it was very little. 
most producers uh, pivoted quickly to 2021s, which are generally, I, I think they're vibrant and they're very attractive at, at an early stage. So it sounds a bit like a mirror of California, which also had their wildfire issues in 2020. So very few wines coming out from that vintage. And then 2021 will be the one to catch. Right. You also happen to talk to a real U.S. wine pioneer for us, Tony Soder. He's a winemaker who got his start in Napa Cabernet in the 1970s. He switched to Pinot Noir way before it was cool, founded a little thing called Etude, which he then sold to Treasury Estates. And then he pulled up stakes and set up shop in Oregon in the late 1990s, before that was cool. All along the way, he worked with wineries like Spotswood, Schaefer, Chapelet. I mean, his imprimatur is all over Napa Valley. Tell us a little bit about him, Tim. It's always interesting to talk to Tony. His first job in Napa was scrubbing tanks and hauling hoses for Warren Monarski at Stag Leap's Wine Cellars, and that was in 1975. And it was right before uh, Stag's Leap won the famous Paris tasting and turned so much attention to Napa at that point. And I asked him about his early winemaking career and how he watched wine country change since then. And he had some great observations. I was thinking yesterday, how many harvests have you worked? <laughs> um, maybe you could help me do the math. Uh, the first <laughs> one was uh, 1975. So it's something more than 45 harvests. Who did you uh, work with the first harvest? That first harvest was at Stagsley Wine Cellars. How did you find your way to Napa? I mean, I think uh, you told me once that after graduation, you're unqualified for any serious job, you said, laughing. Tell me how you came to Napa. Well, one of the things I learned in college, besides learning to learn, was uh, that I didn't want to go to law school. So I didn't actually know what else I wanted to do, but I had cultivated, thanks to a professor there who was teaching classics, an interest in wine. And he was doing wine tastings uh, after hours. And so I got the wine bug pretty early and thought I wouldn't waste my time entirely if I learned more about wine while I was trying to figure out how to make a living in life. And as things happened, I just kept following my nose. And 45 or going on 50 years later, I'm still doing that. When you were at Spotswood, you were also the vineyard manager, if I recall. Was that when you started to realize how important it was that winemaking really is in the vineyard? I jumped at the chance to be managing the vineyard as well as uh, making the wines at Spotswood because it was a realization of mine that I felt once I got some of the basics of winemaking down, some of my limitations were clearly in the field, and I thought I could affect the potential results. Seems like a truism today. You know, the better your raw materials are, the better your wine will be, but Uh, to actually think in terms of farming grapes and doing things in the vineyard that could actually alter the quality of the flavor or improve the performance of the fermentation that would translate into better expression of place and and, uh, individuality. All those things were nuances that uh, I felt I could better address in the field. I got to be known for tending to describe wines, even in a technical situation, uh, steering the conversation to what happened in the vineyard. Why does this wine taste this way? Not how did you make it, but how did you grow it first? It is one of those rote cliches, Tim, that wine is made in the vineyard, but especially in the early days of California winemaking, the 60s and 70s, this was church and state, vineyard and the winemaking, and they were not always together. They did not make decisions together. This has changed a lot. There's still a little bit of a hangover from those days, but when he says you know, he tried to synthesize the two, I think that's really one of the things that was so important about Tony Soder's young career. He was really helping a lot of the prominent Napa producers focus on their vineyards first and then 
make the wine from there. And that's not the only thing that he got in on early. He got in on Pinot Noir early. Tell us a little bit about Tony Soder and Pinot Noir. That's right, James. Even though Tony made his name as a Cabernet winemaker, he ultimately wanted to make Pinot Noir. And I asked him, what was it that drew him to Pinot Noir in the first place? It's all rooted in the fascination with how things work in grape growing and winemaking. And uh, Pinot Noir being the reputed and acknowledged you know, most challenging wine to work with and vines to work with also has this uh, beautiful quality of transparency. It's delicate, doesn't suffer fools well, and um, doesn't have a lot of room for error. You don't judge Pinot Noirs by their color. You don't judge them by their tannin. You don't judge them by their ripeness. In fact, that's counterproductive, but by perfume and complexity. I put the the family name Soder on the label for the wines we did here in Oregon, and it continues today, Soder Vineyards. And uh, now if you thought people thought I was crazy for giving up a good career in Napa and moving to Oregon to make Pinot Noir, I was certifiable in some people's mind for trying to make sparkling wine as well. (laughs) Today we're on 250 acres. We have 50 acres planted, 40 producing. And that's just a fraction of this large piece of property where we continue to grow grains and uh, we have a small herd of Scottish Highlander cows and we raise some pigs. We have a very ambitious uh, vegetable garden program and all of the produce from the property goes into serving guests that come to uh, visit for various events or tasting opportunities. And we have a, a remarkable hospitality program. An inspiration from my wife, Michelle, who sort of insisted that when people came here, they had to really experience everything we were doing on the property, which meant organic and now biodynamic farming of the critters and all the land, all 250 acres, along with making wine. I used to remind her that it was only the wine that had any profit and pays all the bills. And she'd remind me that it's not just about the wine, Tony. It's really about the experience that people take away and that they associate with the wine. And uh, it couldn't have been more profound to to learn that lesson from her and then see people visit here and, and take the experience away. So it's great. It is a terrific piece of property and uh, one that we hope to keep in the family for several generations, if at all possible. Tony is referencing Michelle, his late wife, who sadly passed in 2019. But Tim, when you visited and, and did a profile on him last year, she, she had played a very important role in developing that site with Tony in Oregon, hadn't she? That's right, James. Uh, she was really the inspiration to even have a hospitality program because Tony's just happy sometimes in uh, to make wine and do his thing. And uh, she recognized the beauty of the place and really encouraged him. She was really very inspiring for him. Well, I'm jealous you got to interview Tony. I, I met him way back when in the early 1990s, and I haven't seen him since he, he went up to Oregon. But he was always one of the winemakers that I've his name was anywhere involved in the winemaking of, of a bottling. I was on it um, back in the day. And of course, you know, Etude couldn't be what it is today if it hadn't been on the great footing that he set it on, which is basically what he did for so many wineries up and down Napa Valley. And now he's doing it with his own project in Oregon. So thanks for that interview, Tim. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It was a wonderful story to work on. And now it's time for another edition of Ask Dr. Vinny with our mysterious and wise wine advice columnist, Dr. Vinny. Oh, thank you. I like mysterious and wise, even though I'm pretty sure I'm neither of those things. How are you doing, Rob? I am great. And I've got another one of your all-time most asked questions for you today. 
And it comes to us from Cora in St. Louis, Missouri. Hi, Cora. Dear Dr. Vinny, what's the right way to hold a wine glass? Ah, yes, I do get this one a lot. So let me just start by saying, first and foremost, the wine glass should be steady and comfortable in your hand, period. But (laughs) that said, there is a bit of an etiquette around wine glass holding, and I I don't mean to be controversial at all. If all you want to know is that it's going to be steady and comfortable in your hand, you can fast forward for a little bit. But I'm going to talk about the quote-unquote proper way to hold a wine glass. Just to picture a wine glass, there's a bowl, there's a stem, and then there's a base, right? I know that. (laughs) Good. The wine glass is actually designed so that you hold the wine glass by the stem, not the bowl. And the reason, well, there are a few reasons, actually. One is that that way the warmth of your hand isn't transferring to the wine in the glass, right? It also makes it easier to swirl and kind of admire the color of the wine. And one of my personal peeves are greasy fingerprints on a bowl of a wine glass. So it doesn't really matter where on the stem you hold the glass. I usually kind of find my hand kind of pinching the stem towards the bottom near the base because that's just comfortable for me. But um, I do notice that a lot of, in particular, Psalms kind of hold it by the base itself which is also appropriate because you're not transferring your heat to the wine. And it's a bit of a baller move. But holding a wine glass like a brandy snifter is a big faux pas. So that is if you kind of cup the bowl of the wine glass between your fingers, that is kind of a a noob novice kind of look for a wine lover. I know it's going to feel secure in your hand that way, but it really is considered not the quote-unquote, proper way to hold a wine glass. So what about these stemless wine glasses? Yeah, you know, (laughs) so it's a bit of a wine paradox, right? I just told you you're supposed to hold a wine glass by its stem, but there are very popular stemless wine glasses, which I'm not mad about. I, I do like that there are wine glasses for every occasion, and I think that's awesome. There, there shouldn't be any budget barrier to buying and enjoying wine. Uh, stemless wine glasses are typically sturdier. They're definitely more dishwasher safe and easier to store. So yeah, so there's no wrong way to hold a stemless wine glass. It's just that those fingerprints are going to drive me crazy. That's all. Well, thanks for clearing up how to hold a wine glass today, Dr. Vinny. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to answer this again. I'm, I'm not trying to be a snob, but part of my job is to point out the finer points of etiquette. And you got to hold the wine glass by the stem if you're a friend of mine and you are physically able to. I want to be your friend. You are my friend. <laughs> For more of Dr. Vinny's free advice, check out her weekly Q&As at Wine Spectator's website and email us your questions at straighttalk at winespectator.com. It's free? Are you sure? <laughs> i'm teasing i'm glad it's free advice should be accessible to everyone and i'm glad everyone can get a chance to read dr Vinny. cheapest doctor in town (laughs) that's who you want to go to right (laughs) james uh what do you think are you a stem holder or, or do you grab life by the bowls I'm glad I wasn't drinking any coffee when you asked me that question. Otherwise, it would have been spit out all over my computer screen. But on that note, I'm going to say we've reached the end of another episode of Straight Talk with Wine Spectator. What's coming up next time, Rob? Wow, keeping it a mystery. (laughs) Next time, we'll be taking our lead from the July 31st, 2023 issue of Wine Spectator, which means we'll be talking California Chardonnay with Marianne. And she's lining up some very cool guests for us. 
And in the meantime, if our listeners have any questions or just want to drop us a line, please email us at straighttalk at winespectator.com. And don't forget to follow Wine Spectator on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Now, how about that bonus wine pick to reward our loyal listeners to the end? Well, when it's my sneak peek wine pick, I always hold it by the stem, Rob. And this time <laughs> it would be the 2020 Chateau Burliquet Saint-Emilion. This is an interesting property. It was bought by the Chanel Group back in 2017. They own Chateau Canon and Rosan Segla. And uh, Nicola Odebert is at, at the helm of this. And uh, in one of my winery intels, I did say in, in the past 10 years, he's one of the few people who has just taken a chateau on a rocket ride at Chateau Canal, change in style and a real improvement in quality. So I'm expecting great things from Burlicade since it was bought in 17. 2020 is kind of like the first vintage where they got their hands on it. 92 points, 57 bucks. This shows the richness of the 2020 vintage. It's got a big core fruit. Um, but it's got that nice chalky note that you get from the limestone plateau there, and, and Burley K is really well situated. So I think this is one way, if you've got a Bordeaux Jones you want to solve now or cure now, this is the one you do, and then this is a chateau you want to watch going forward, Chateau Burley K. Good intel, as always. Thanks for joining us on Straight Talk. I'm James Molesworth, reminding you to always share when you drink the good stuff. <laughs> <laughs>